Well, perhaps you turn now to that passage that we read earlier, Galatians chapter 4. And we're just looking at this section, chapter 8, um, verses 8 to 20. I, I've recently preached through the whole of Galatians, and um, one, of the, one of the problems is when you, you preach a series, it's almost impossible just to take one passage out. I'm sure people have found that over preaching. Uh, it's very difficult to, to just pick a sermon from the middle. You think you've got an awful store of sermons to preach elsewhere, but in fact that isn't the case, generally speaking, if you've been preaching through it in an expository manner. So there are occasionally just passages that you can do that with. I think this is one of those, and uh, we're going to be looking at it uh, together um, this morning. And with this uh, section of the letter, uh, we see a dramatic shift in uh, Paul's approach. Um, we find him breaking away from his... Uh, vitally important theological, biblical theological arguments, uh, which are, in a sense, slightly impersonal. They're very objective. He's, he's demonstrating the truth. He, he's showing them, showing the Galatians who are in a desperate state because all these Judaizers have turned up and are trying to convince them that, yes, they've become Christians, they believe in Jesus, but if they want to become proper Christians, then obviously they've got to be Join, join Judaism, as it were. They've got to get circumcised and they've got to obey the law of Moses because that's what God's always commanded. It's the eternal law and that will complete them. And a lot of them are swallowing this and some of them are getting circumcised and uh, uh, some of them are following days and seasons in the Jewish calendar and so on and so forth. And Paul is appalled that they're thinking that this is necessary for them to complete their allegiance to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, you're justified by faith in Christ Jesus alone and not in any shape or form by the works of the law of Moses. And so he's been spending a lot of time in that. And it's incredibly important what he's been teaching. But now, when you get to this section, uh, he turns away from uh, appealing to their minds, we might say. He's now appealing to their hearts. And he does so in this passage in what is really a passionate outburst, which is full of anguish and, and, and perplexity and frustration, but above all, it's full of jealous love and, and heartfelt concern for these uh, believers in Galatia, for their spiritual welfare. And what he does, and the way he does it, it seems to me, as we come to this passage, he does it by exploring three uh, profound relationships. Uh, relationships he, he, he deliberately and beautifully pictures in, in such a way as to bring out their, their intimate nature and their reciprocal nature. They're very deep relationships. And he's appealing to their hearts, as I say. And these are relationships that he, he believed these Galatians once had. He hopes they still have, but, but fears might never truly have existed. And that's true of the three relationships in this passage that we're going to, to look at. And it'll become clear as we go through. And so the first relationship is an obvious one. It's the relationship between the Galatians and God. So if you look at this passage, I'm just going to read uh, three or four verses from verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. They were Gentiles. They were converted from an idol-worshipping community. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 
You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And uh, here is Paul desperately perturbed, as you can see. And in verse 9, Paul says, Now you know God. And here is the very basic foundational thing that he's saying about these people. This is, is what he believed they once had this relationship. He, he hopes they still have this relationship. He worries that it never existed. This is the first relationship we're looking at in this passage. And uh, it's the fundamental relationship which underlies all the others. And what he, he aims to do in this passage is to fill them with a, a sense of, of awe at the thought that they know God. Do you remember in the upper room that uh, Jesus had prayed to his father in these words? He said, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the word know, when Paul speaks here about them knowing God, it's to be understood, of course, in its fullest biblical sense it's uh, like we read in the old bible that adam knew eve and that is translated weekly when the niv i think like adam made love to eve or something like that but it's far more profound in the original adam knew eve this knowledge this spiritual knowledge speaks of the summit of love and intimacy and union and this is what Paul is speaking about here. He said, now, he says to them, now you know God. But notice that immediately Paul corrects himself. He says here in verse 9, you know God or rather are known by God. Look at this. This is surely far more wonderful still. The truth is they could never have had this supreme, sublime relationship with God had he not first set his heart upon them. There's um, famous verses which are parallel to these in the first letter of John, when John says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He goes on to say, we love because he first loved us. He says, the essence of love is that God loved us. That's where you want to start. And we love God in return. We could never have loved God if he hadn't first loved us. As Paul himself says, of course, in Romans chapter 8, he says that he foreknew us. And again, it's the biblical meaning of no. He foreknew us. And because he foreknew us, he predestined us to be his sons. He loved us before the beginning of creation in this sublime, intimate way. He foreknew us before ever we could love him. And we respond by, uh, to God's love by putting our faith in what his son has done. And now says Paul to the Galatians, you are threatening to forsake 
this relationship of love which I believe was formed and established between yourselves and God. You've been persuaded that you need to add in <coughs> all the feasts and the festivals of the Jewish calendar. He says, look, once before you were Christians, you were enslaved by all your pagan rituals. You remember that, he says? You believed you had to do all these things superstitiously because you were pagans. And now, he says, you want to be enslaved by another set of rituals which were ultimately only meant to point to Christ or the law of the Old Testament. You want to be enslaved to that? They were only meant to point to Christ. You now have Christ. And so therefore these pointers are redundant. You've arrived at your destination. You don't need the signposts anymore. How foolish this is to imagine that you do. Now, I think incidentally it's amazing, isn't it, that Paul makes a comparison between their pagan slavery and their slavery to the Jewish law. Quite incredible that he actually draws out deliberately here. He says they're more or less the same thing. The chains of being a pagan and the chains of being a Jew now. He says they're virtually the same thing. You don't want to be enslaved one way or the other. You want to enjoy the freedom, which is the great theme of Galatians. You want to enjoy the freedom of what it is to be a Christian. He says, are you really going to exchange one form of bondage for another? He says, it's not only crazy, but it's highly disturbing because it means you don't really understand the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. You do not understand that Jesus' love has done it all for you on the cross. And that's a desperately worrying thing. And that's why he says in verse 11, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. What a dreadful thing that is for Paul to say, goodness me, have they got such a shallow grasp of what Jesus means that they're prepared to think they must add other things in order to be a proper Christian? And he implies that they must surely be feeling the joy and, and the freedom of their intimate relationship with the Lord ebbing away. And how about us? Because we can apply this to ourselves as, as Christians as well. We may not consciously be depending upon things outside of Christ for our salvation. We may not be consciously in that position. But the temptation is always there in our lives to be holding on to other things, to be depending upon other things in this world. To be thinking if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be what we ought to be. Instead of trusting in Christ alone. And always remember, this is what Paul is saying here. When your sense of the Lord's presence is weak. Or when the very assurance of your own salvation is low. It is never because Jesus loves you less. It is simply because you are not depending upon him as once you did. And this is what is, is becoming apparent in the situation in Galatia. Uh, because their, their, their dependence on Christ is not absolute, then their experience of him ebbs away. That, that's what happens in our lives. That's what happens in our lives. And you think that Jesus doesn't love you as once he did. But the truth is, you're not leaning on him as hard as once you did. Because you would never say that. You would never feel that if that was the case. 
Paul is desperately concerned with these people. That, that's the first relationship, that intimate relationship, that reciprocal relationship. You love God because God loves you. See how that fits together so well. Now, the second one is the same. The second one is the relationship between the Galatians and Paul. This is, a, this is the second relationship that, that, that Paul says, I believe we once had, I hope we still have, but I'm fearful that never really existed, this relationship between you and, and me. And uh, it's encapsulated in what is, in fact, Paul's very first call to action in the whole letter. If you look at verse uh, 12, chapter 4 and verse 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me as I became like you. Become like me as I became like you. Notice again the interactive symmetry in this relationship which mirrors the way he expressed their relationship with God. You know God, for God knows you. Now it's become like me, for I became like you. And that's no accident. He brings these two relationships together like this because they are interdependent uh, and, and, and both reciprocal relationships. The one is vertical. You love God because God loved you. The second one is horizontal. It's to do with Christian fellowship here, isn't it? Become like me as I became like you. We're, we're so interconnected. This is what Paul is saying here. Now, first of all, of course, this is an example of how Paul contextualized the gospel. He says in Corinthians, he says, to those not having the law, Gentiles, like the people in Galatia, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. In other words, he deliberately shed his Jewishness. He says in Galatians 1, he says he'd shed his previous way of life in Judaism so as to be able to relate to them and so as not to confuse his presentation of the gospel of pure grace. It doesn't need any of these added things. It's all a matter of grace and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this was, you know, I mean, missionaries are taught this sort of thing today, aren't they? All about cultural adaptation, that we need to shed everything that will get in the way. Cultural adaptation won him an opening for his preaching. But then, this is the marvelous thing, then, once their relationship with God was established, their relationship with Paul was in turn elevated to a new level. So we could say this, when he became like them naturally, became like one of them culturally, naturally, he won them to Christ. And then they became like him spiritually. So this is what he's saying. Become like me as I became like you. It's a model for evangelism, but also a reminder that once we are Christians, our horizontal relationships are dependent on and nurtured by our vertical relationship with God. Now, this is of incredible practical importance here because many churches today concentrate upon the horizontal. They concentrate upon horizontal relationships. Let's do more and more things together. And then somehow we just, you know, knock all the rough edges off one another. We'll get on together and we'll start to want to do the same things together and we'll be like one another and our fellowship will be better. Well, seems to be nothing wrong with that in theory. But it's not the biblical model. The biblical model is nurturing the vertical relationship with God. And then the horizontal relationship 
follows necessarily. It's not to say we don't do as many things as we can together. Of course not. Of course, we try to do that. But it will be nurtured spiritually by the vertical, by our relationship. That's why we preach Christ and him crucified. That's why the more we understand the essence of the gospel, the more our oneness in Christ and our relationship to one another will be nurtured and will grow. Our horizontal fellowship depends upon our vertical relationship. That's why Paul starts the first relationship. You love God because God loved you. Now become like me because I became like you. And, and, and remember what that means, he says. How one is built upon the other. And it was the decay of their relationship with God that led directly to the disruption of their relationship with Paul. They got on so well with Paul. He, he talks a lot about it in this passage. But he says, I'm like an enemy to you now. And that is because your relationship with God has decayed. Having rejected the gospel, that was the first thing, they now reject him. But he desperately wants that relationship restored. There it is again in verse 12. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. He's saying to them, are you really taking up the way of life I abandoned in order to reach you? Is that what you're saying? And he, he says, you did me no wrong. Verse 13, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. I'm not going to waste time speculating on what that illness was. Verse 14, and even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul is absolutely distraught here in this very personal passage at the way in which they've turned against him. And it is all because of the Judaizers and their false teaching. Look at verse 17. Those people, he won't even name them, he's so disgusted with them. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to do so always, not just when I am with you. Those <coughs> who truly know and love God love his people. And often, of course, just to apply it for a moment, often one of the first signs that a believer's relationship with the Lord is not as it should be, is seen in the cooling of their relationships with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I've noticed that over the years, time and time again. And you notice people, you know, aren't really relating to one another, and then they stop coming to church, of course, um, because their friendships are no longer what they were. And it is a sign, ultimately, of course, of the decay in their relationship with the Lord, because that's the foundational relationship, the vertical relationship, which is followed by the horizontal, which so often is a giveaway as to the spiritual state of the people involved. You can tell them in the church. Generally speaking, the more involved people are in the work and life of the church, generally speaking, their spiritual life is likely to be healthier. And those who are on the fringes, their spiritual life and their relationship with the Lord is likely to be less strong. And 
sounds pretty obvious anyway. But this is the biblical basis for it. This is why that is the case and how it will be seen. And just one last point before leaving this, this second relationship. Um, when Paul says, become like me, for I became like you, he's actually imitating Christ. On, on another occasion, of course, you remember Paul was to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, in the scriptures, of course, Paul always follows the example of Christ. He says, um, he's really saying, become like me as I become like Christ. And isn't that just what he's doing here? Couldn't the Lord Jesus Christ supremely say, become like me, for I became like you? Isn't that, isn't that the heart of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done? Didn't Christ become like us, that we might become like him? You see how Christ-like Paul is when he's saying this. Not proudly, but because he is such an imitator of the Lord Jesus in the way he operates. We should be able to say that to others. Become like me, for I became like you. I drew close to you. I did everything I could to be your friend and your helper in order that you might see Christ in me. Become like me, a Christian. For I became like you. It's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And no wonder they welcomed Christ as if he were Christ Jesus himself. Because he was acting just like Christ when he was with them in those Galatian churches. But then thirdly, let's come to the, the last, the third intimate and reciprocal relationship which we find in this passage where Paul is appealing to their hearts with such strength. And uh, it's even a little more complex in a sense, but it's, it's, it's also very, very simple. Look at verses 19 and 20. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Now this relationship involves not just two parties, but three parties. This is a relationship between the Galatians, Paul, and Christ. So it's been the relationship between Galatians and God, the relationship between Galatians and Paul, and now the relationship between the Galatians, Paul, and Christ. All are involved in this picture in verse 19. Uh, the picture that Paul paints of this relationship is profoundly intimate. What could be more intimate than, than, than childbirth. It's, it's symbiotic, if you like. It's also slightly abstract because if you think about this, it's not, it's, there are two pictures in one here in verse 19, all at the same time. Now, Paul begins by calling the Galatians here in verse 19, my dear children in the faith. He hopes they still are. He believes that spiritually he's been their mother, as it were. He has brought them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has labored for them, uh, literally, uh, spiritually, for, for their to come to foe. He hopes they still are, but he fears that that was not the case and they need to be born all over again. However, the picture doesn't end there. Paul describes himself 
as bearing and delivering, and delivering children who have been stillborn, perhaps, or have been delivered prematurely and have died. He says, that's my fear for you. And so, therefore, he's now hoping that he's going to bear and deliver them once again. This time they will not be stillborn. This time they will not die prematurely. But they'll go on to spiritual maturity. And what he's saying here in this verse is, you were formed in me so that Christ may be formed in you. And you see again the, the incredible symmetry involved in this relationship. You were formed in me so that Christ may be formed in you. That's his longing for the Galatians. So they might all be able to make Paul's testimony their own. I, I think my favorite verse in Galatians 2, and probably yours as well, if you thought about it, is Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We are in Christ so that Christ may be seen in us. You see, again, you've got this incredible mutual, reciprocal, immensely intense, intimate relationship, which is being drawn to a climax here in this great image. And again, Paul is following Christ's example, as it were. You were formed in me that um, Christ may be formed in you. And, and, and it's again an expression of Paul's incredible understanding of what is going on in this whole situation. And, and we need to be those who have been so soundly brought to faith in Christ, so aware that Christ lives in us by his spirit, that we are able to mature in Christ, that Christ may be more and more formed in us, that others may see Christ in us more and more, that he will take up all the space in our hearts and our lives more and more, Christ formed in us. So it's a, a, an amazing uh, relationship. These, all these relationships are incredibly profound. He's appealing straight to their hearts and saying, look, are these things true of you? Do you love God? Does God love you? Do you know God? Does God know you? What about that relationship with me? He says, um, you know, I became like you. Have you become like me? Have you really become like me? Uh, free in Christ? Trusting in him alone? And then he says, are you still born? Prematurely born? Have you died in infancy? What's going on here? I thought I'd given birth to True believers. Is Christ being formed in you? Just as I thought you were being formed in me? This is incredible language, but you can understand what he is saying. And that's why he ends in the way he does in verse 20, with, with great pain in his heart. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Um, your heart goes out to Paul. Um, like every good pastor since, he's often 
perplexed by his flock. He doesn't know the answer. He doesn't know quite how to deal with the situation. And it's all the harder because he's not with them. But even though he's perplexed with them, he's always patient with them. And he knows that suffering, of course, is, is part of his calling. He understands that he's following Christ as well in this particular way. He could have said to the Galatians what he later wrote to the Colossians. He wrote to the Colossians, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And he would have said to the Galatians, Look, I don't mind suffering for you. I don't mind going through all of this agony for you, provided you again are established firmly in Christ alone in your salvation and are living as you should be, not split apart as you are obviously in the church at Galatia. And it's true of us as well, isn't it? We don't have to be pastors to feel this. All of us have our own struggles. Every one of us here has difficulties that we're going through at the moment, some that are unknown to anybody else in this building. And we need, therefore, to show the same love and long-suffering to one another as we each wait for Christ to be fully formed in us.